Hi, plant friends, and welcome to another episode of the PBN Podcast. The team here at Plant Based News are always looking for incredible vegan products, and Newzest is no different. They are a nutrition company, and their mission is a planet thriving on plant based foods. They have a delicious vegan protein called Clean Lean Protein. It's made from European golden peas from the north of France. These guys actually tell you exactly where their protein comes from, which is pretty unique. As well as being super clean and non-GMO, they use an enzymatic water-based chemical-free isolation process. It's super yummy, it's not chalky or gritty, it's smooth and delicious. I love it. So for plant-based news listeners, go to plnt.news forward slash newsest. Pick your region and use coupon code PBN25 to get 25% off your first order. Once again, that's PBN25 for 25% off your first order. Just visit plnt.news forward slash newsest or click the link in the description to find out more. We were imagining that this would be mostly a climate change documentary. We thought that maybe climate would be the biggest threat to the ocean along with plastic, like a, a close tie between all three of them, climate, plastic, and fishing. As the journey progressed, we learned that actually those issues were sometimes related to fishing and fishing was by far the leading threat. And, and those other things were more like exacerbators of the problem, you know? That's that's where really the story emerged through this exploration of, of what was going on in the real world. Hi, plant friends, and welcome to a very special episode of the PBN podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. Today's episode is actually gonna be hosted by PBN founder, Klaus Mitchell. Husband and wife, Ali and Lucy Tabrizi are the filmmakers behind the hit Netflix documentary, Seaspiracy. It uncovers the horrors of modern industrial fishing. The film features human impacts on marine life, such as plastic marine debris, ghost nets, and the overfishing around the world. The documentary was one of the top 10 most watched films on Netflix in several countries on the week of its release, and generated significant traction on social media. According to the United Nations FAO, around 87% of the world's fish populations are already fully fished or overfished. Nearly a third of edible fish populations have declined by 90%. That study says that if biodiversity continues to decline, the marine environment will not be able to sustain our way of life. Indeed, it may not be able to sustain all of our lives at all. The global fishing industry has more than doubled in capacity since 1950. It's now so huge it can't help but destroy our oceans. What Ali and Lucy discovered whilst making Seaspiracy was truly shocking. Fishing has wiped out 90% of the world's largest fish. More than 300,000 dolphins, whales and porpoises are killed by fishing operations every year. Ali and Lucy sat down with Klaus to talk about these questions and some of the criticisms they face and to go through the behind the scenes snippets from Seaspiracy the documentary. As always, if you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to comment, like and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Firstly, thank you so much, Ali and Lucy, for doing this interview. I really, really uh, appreciate it. I know how busy you've probably been. How's the reception been? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we had no idea the film would be received so well. It's already risen to uh, number one in several countries in the, in the film category and overall category on Netflix. It's like in the top one to three in so many, top 10 in like almost 50 countries. So, we, we, you know, we were not expecting this. We really thought the film would just be maybe buried in all the content that's on Netflix and maybe we'll do some film festivals or something like that. We had no idea the overwhelming response. We've had A-list celebrities share it. We've had scientists share it. We've had huge, huge accounts. You know, schools are reaching out to us, letting us know that they're showing it to their kids. Um, so it's, it's been incredible. 
And so we're, we're now sort of going, wow, like we need to backpedal, we need to grow our team. And so we're growing our team now to keep up with social media and carrying on this campaign. We've got future events coming up um, that will be on our website. And so, yeah, it's, it's just been completely remarkable and has really taken us by surprise. My name is Ali. I've been fascinated with the ocean for as long as I can remember. But this romantic vision that I always had of the ocean completely changed. I was forced to confront a side of the story I never knew. A story of just how huge our impact on the seas had become. Where are the big environment groups? They are deliberately not engaging with the most important issue of all. Can you turn off the cameras? Thanks. Would you say there's any safety concerns for me making this film? Congratulations again. I mean, it was an amazing piece of content that you put together and so many people have shared it. You mentioned A-list celebrities there, Ali, but, you know, athletes like Chris Froome, one of the world's best cyclists or journalists like George Monbiot or Kourtney Kardashian, you know, have you guys, mm. she obviously shared it a couple of weeks ago, but have you guys had any kind of interesting DMs from anybody? I mean, it's often not the celebrities. It's like, you know, the kind of people with, you know, maybe a few hundred followers that write to me that that sometimes get to me. You know, someone wrote to me who was a, um, she was a chef and she'd been a pescatarian her whole life. She specialized in making fish and, and seafood dishes. And she said, you know, I, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to go vegetarian. And, you know, I was, I was trying to, uh, brainstorm with her like ways that you know she could come up with different kind of products that weren't made with seafood and, mm. and it's just the, the impact that you know you can have on people's lives I think someone wrote to you um about you know they were studying marine biology or something yeah like the, you, you know, know people, people are like oh this is what I want to do with my life now right. I'm so inspired people, and whether they go on to yeah. do that or not you know it, it can change people's lives in what lives in such profound ways that's like it's really um mm. moving I think yeah yeah people writing to us that you know they're maybe doing it taking a change in their career choice um you know even seafood chefs and and, and those kinds of people it, it's been remarkable across the board and all demographics you know this has been a complete cannonball when it comes to like impact reaching all demographics so it's blasted the audience wide open and now everyone's starting to talk about ocean conservation and it really shows that you know the world was really prime and ready for this message right now because you know we weren't expecting this response, but the response really shows that that you know people are willing to change, people are, people are willing to sort of like do what it takes, people are willing to try and and, and save the ocean. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. And Ali, you said it blew the audience wide open. It blew the fishing industry completely out of the water. And what's funny about this this whole film is it's it's been so many years in the making. I remember a couple of years ago, you basically said it was done. Then a year ago, you said it was nearly done. Six months ago, it still wasn't out. What's the sort of uh, journey been like? <laughs> I, I want to start. I want to start on that one. I think you can definitely finish this one. Because because what when we started this film, we had we had this vision that like we'd maybe be finished in about 10 months right so start to finish the filming the editing all done about 10 months less than a year and then it spilled over into like a year and a half and then we're like okay two years we'll get this done and then the story got deeper we went down the rabbit hole we're getting more interviews more pieces of the puzzle started to emerge we're starting to understand the bigger picture and before we know it three years three and a half years and then four years and then sort of like spilling over four years like then we're like wow okay we we finally finished and then netflix said then right there's a huge process at the end when you finish as well yeah like, legal deliveries and stuff like that but then netflix gave us the release date and before we knew it we're like here's the release date and it's out there and and in the past week it's been sort of just where are we at with this so <laughs> i just wanted to add that i think with anything creative like this i think 
what you like you can work on something like this forever you know like you have to put a stop at some point because think about it when you're working on something like this like new new science is coming out all the time new new stories like things are happening and you just want to keep adding them in, in adding it in you could we could be making this literally forever um but at some point you got to pull the plug and be like right you know that's it the safety concerns are serious. Ignore them at your risk. If you're getting in the way of their business, you are risking your own life. The slaughter of these dolphins is a reaction to the overfishing that's happening. We hear a lot about blood diamonds. This is blood shrimp. To the people that, that haven't seen the, the documentary or they've seen it and they still think local fishing uh, can be good or that some people need it for sustenance, what do you say back to these kind of people? Mm. So I think what we found is in the film that there are people around the world that that need to rely on you know fisheries to for sustenance, right? So we, we cover in the film people in West Africa who rely on them uh, and elsewhere. The problem is today, if, if you want to have the small scale fishery providing you fish regularly for your for your diet times that by seven eight billion people you end up with the same problem but the best option that we have to protect our oceans is to adopt a plant-based diet and whether that's something that people do one day a week or eventually go 100 plant-based that's gonna be the best thing that we can do i wanted to ask about the faroe islands which in my opinion was one of the most powerful moments in the film <laughs> like mm. i don't know what to ask but but how was that so I think what a lot of people don't realize is the scene towards the end of the film with the Faroe Islands whale hunt was so close to being cut out, you know, throughout the whole process. We just didn't know how it was going to integrate with the story because, you know, as, as the voiceover, as, as, as my narration states, you know, it did feel like a step backwards. Here we, here we were, we'd just gone on this huge journey and this whole voyage of understanding the leading threat to our oceans and all the slavery and the, you know, the, the deforestation of the, the sea floor and the bycatch and the species extinction, the plastic, everything. It felt like a step backwards to really start talking about whaling again. And we really didn't know like if we could present such graphic footage. And we had so much footage from the Faroe Islands that was just so unbelievably graphic or the images will never leave me. Yeah, I mean, you kind of covered it really well, mm. but obviously we cover whaling right at the beginning of the film. So there was a there was a couple of days there where we were really stuck and we're like, how can we make this work? Like how like we can't we can't put this at the beginning of the film. We can't like it doesn't. It, it's so different from the whaling we put at the beginning of the film. It's something that's made some of the you know the biggest emotional impact on people, and actually helped people understand the parallels between like hunting whales. And the hunting of the rest of the marine life in our oceans that we all consume and the hypocrisy of pointing fingers at this country and that country, whether it be the Faroe Islands mm. or, or Taiji in Japan, and actually going, hold on a minute, we're all complicit in the decimation of marine life. And it's actually, we all need to start with ourselves as opposed to pointing fingers yeah. elsewhere when it comes to protecting our ocean. Yeah, it's kind of comes full circle in a lot of ways. Like I think a lot of the reason we start with Japan or we start with plastic is because that's where we feel like, you know, the public is, you know, people are already aware of well, to an extent about um, what goes on in Taiji um, and people know that plastic is a huge problem. So that's like a starting point, you know, travel kind of around the world, looking at these issues and it comes back to us um, on, on a global level, like we're all kind of complicit in this and we all have a role to play. And how, just to, to ask about the production again, was most of it editing, a couple of years of editing and, oh, sorry, it was a couple of years of it, like, you know, going around the world, videoing it and then it was editing and or was it a little bit of both? How did it work out? 
I was just going to say, I think it started off very heavily travel based. And then, you know, there was editing in that sporadic editing. And then as it went on, it transitioned more into editing. By the end, it was like 100% editing, 100% sitting at the mm. computer every day, um, late nights, you know. So, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, the beginning, you know, is you're, you're really going out there to try and explore what the truth is. You're trying to you're trying to gather information. You're trying to get interviews. You're 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 trying to pass out what's going on in the world. And then when you come back in the editing phase, that's really when the the sort of storytelling elements emerge as you begin to see patterns emerging in the footage of interviews and seeing what questions are raising a lot of resistance when we're filming these certain things in Hong Kong or in Japan and what's causing the most resistance and why is there resistance to us filming this stuff. That's when the story emerged that like, you know, the, the, there's an industry there that's trying to protect uh, any scrutiny on it. Uh, and so that's when the story emerged of, you know, more about the fishing industry and, and what's going and once, on. Once we did have that thesis in mind, you know, we did, we did go on an interviews with that in mind oh, as yeah. well. So it started mm. off very, very, you know, yeah. chaotic, a yeah. bit all over the place, trying to find out what's going on. And then, I'd, you know, halfway through, it's like, okay, well, this is something that's kept coming up. So let's run with it. You mm. know, let's just bring up this question with people. Yeah, because because at the beginning, obviously, you know, we knew about the impacts of, of fishing a little bit and how fish populations were going down, but nowhere near as much as we found out during making the film. And actually at the beginning, we were we were imagining that this would be mostly a climate change documentary. We thought that maybe climate would be the biggest threat to the ocean along with plastic, like a, a close tie between all three of them, climate, plastic, and fishing. But as the journey progressed, we learned that actually those issues were sometimes related to fishing and fishing was by far the leading threat. And, and those other things were more like exacerbators of the problem. You know, that's that's where really the story emerged through this exploration of, of what was going on in the real world. Sorry, this wasn't part of the question, but I think the climate change angle on it is really sort of interesting because the way we covered it is kind of like leave these ocean systems in place and that's what we can do for climate change. And I don't think that's part of the mainstream narrative when it comes to climate change yeah. is like, you know, the ocean is the biggest carbon sink. Um, you know, these ocean systems and marine plants, animals um, moving up and down the water column, all these things that, you know, they impact our climate. And mm. I thought that was super interesting. And and obviously you mentioned that, you know, this has been years in the works, right? How was it? kind of working it for years and years and years and years and that feeling when it kind of finally came out and also are there any kind of funny anecdotes from from friends old friends from school people that have seen it they're like oh my god you're in this documentary i actually heard from my gp who who sent me a text message like separately and said oh you know i saw the film um you know brilliant job and stuff like that we definitely delayed gratification on this and made sure it was as as watertight as possible because you know we're pulling this elastic band back for years and years and years and, and, and uncovering all this stuff, and and so when the when the film finally released, we had a lot of sort of energy built up when it released. It was along with Netflix's audience and, and the work we put in. I think people recognized that and, and appreciated the the time that went into it and telling this story so succinctly. Uh, and I'm just really appreciating people's feedback on that. But um, yeah, it was a surprise because as I said, we weren't expecting the the overwhelming response and the fact that. Everyone, you know, people from your, you know, neighbors on the street to people on the other side of the world reaching out to you. It's, um, it's just been completely mind boggling and I haven't really processed it yet. So I don't really know really what to say on that. It must, it must have been cool though, you know, all the, the influencers and, and celebrities sharing it just because the impact that they, they can have potentially because of their audience. Yeah. And I think like the celebrities and influencers, um, what's been really cool to see is a lot of them are, you know, people that might not necessarily share this kind of thing. They aren't usually interested in the environment and sort mm. of like, you know, plastic pollution, any of that stuff. So to see them sharing this was, was super amazing because it's like, you know. Yeah. Something that they want to talk about to their followers. So it was really, really encouraging. 
Even the groups that are talking about marine plastic are highly reluctant to talk about what a lot of that plastic is, which is fishing nets and fishing gear. We hear a lot about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and say, oh, isn't it terrible? All our cotton buds and plastic bags are, are swirling around in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. 46% of it is fishing nets, discarded fishing nets, which are far more dangerous for marine life than our plastic straws because, of course, they're designed to kill. Now, this is so crashingly obvious. Why aren't we talking about it? Why aren't even the plastics campaigns talking about fishing. And what's the biggest thing you both learned from, from, making, <laughs> from making the documentary? The biggest thing I've learned, uh, the thing that blew my mind the most was just how amazing fish are. I read this book, um, What a Fish Knows by Jonathan Balcombe, and he was um, interviewed at the end of the film about fish sentience. And it just, uh, I was just, my mind was absolutely blown by just how incredible fish are and how overlooked they are. Um, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're incredible things that, that we're just beginning to learn about fish and, and not only their, their sentience, their intelligence, their, their remarkable things about fish, but also their role in the ecosystem and, and, their, and their role in the carbon cycle and, and the mixing of the seas, as, as we explained in our ocean, in the film and how that plays into the climate and, and everything else. For me, one of the biggest uh, you know discoveries was learning about the sea floor damage from um, bottom trawling and how that compares to deforestation on land, which is a huge issue. But compared to the area equivalent under the sea, losing all of those you know beautiful uh, marine plants, those kelp forests, those seagrass meadows, you know how how they're being completely bulldozed to the rate of three point nine billion acres a year, absolutely astounded me. So I think learning about that was hugely you know it was it was, it was an eye opener for me. I mean, these are numbers we can't get our head around, like billion. I mean, how can we even quantify that? You know, like the ocean is so huge; it's like what seventy percent of the planet, and it's just. It's just numbers you can't even fathom. Mm. Mm, it's like, um, who was who it? Is it Stalin? It was like one death is a tragedy and a million is just a statistic. You know, it's really hard for human bit, human psychology to internalise and digest millions and billions of deaths. But just a broad kind of question, do you think change is happening quickly enough now? I think the oceans are clearly at a turning point right now. Um, so that's why I think, you know, um, this film is really timely because, you know, we're really at a point where we, we have to change. We have something has to change or else, um, you know, it's just, you know, this is for our, the next generation. This is for our futures and everything. And um, we're at a really crucial point. And I do think there is a lot of hope because once the ocean is left to recover, it does bounce back. You know, there's marine protected areas. But when they are left alone, even for a short amount of time, they do bounce back magnificently. So um, I think there's a lot of hope. And I, I really hope this film is instrumental in bringing that. Um, sort of awareness and change that's needed. How had I not heard about this before? Fishing vessels discard a massive amount of ropes and lines, and this was a major problem. Today, even some of the most remote places on Earth were awash with fishing gear, like Henderson Island in the Pacific Ocean and Svalbard in the Arctic Circle. In fact, looking closer at some of the whales that washed up in the UK when my journey began, I discovered fishing gear was the main trash in their stomachs. This was the whale in the room that no one was talking about. I even found that longline fishing sets enough fishing lines to wrap around the entire planet 500 times every single day. And how big was the, the kind of Seaspiracy team or was it just you guys um, filming this and then editing this? Yeah, so one of the big questions we've had is, you know, how big was the production size of the team? Like how many people were working on it? And we, you know, we have, you know, obviously 
people that came in and help us with animations and music and scoring and things like that. Um, but the central team was really, really small, really small independent team of just, you know, two or three people, uh, Lucy and I and Kip. And so, you know, when we're going around the world and we're traveling, we're filming this stuff, we're, we're really being able to sneak through the gaps and, and get those sort of undercover expose moments around the world, uh, sneaking into these uh, fish expos and, and get in and out of airports and countries. You know, because we are such a small team, we had you know, small cameras and a lot of it was just filmed very on the fly. I think that actually worked to our benefit making this film. Yeah, um, we managed to fit all the camera gear into like sort of two backpacks. So we just look like two travelers. And, and you know, the fact that we do just look like we're a couple sort of traveling, we're, we're able to like, you know, um, yeah. slip underneath and yeah. sort of like get footage that would have been a lot harder for a big production team. So yeah, I think it did work to our benefit. We're able to get a lot of stuff that we wouldn't have been able to get if we were a bigger team. And a bit of trivia for people, uh, apparently some of the exotic sea shots were actually filmed in uh, Grey Kent in the UK, correct? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, so thanks to the power of color grading, um, there were some B-roll shots of, of the ocean in the film, um, which look a lot bluer than they actually were. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, where the first is that the ocean around the UK is often cursed with a brownish green color. And, um, you know, I managed to get some shots of it with drone and slow motion of waves crashing and just change the color to make it look a lot, a lot bluer to, to fit with some of the B-roll, but it's only in a few spots in the film. And what was that kind of broad question, but what was your favorite moment in, in the documentary? I think my favorite moment, I hope it's not, I'm not stealing yours, but um, was when we went with Sea Shepherd off the coast of Liberia. That was, um, that was amazing. You know, uh, there was one point where we were sitting uh, right at the front of the ship, the ship, the boat, <laughs> um, and there was a pot of dolphins just like, you know, just surfing on the water right there. And we got it all on camera and it was just incredible to see these animals in the wild. Like um, when I was young, you know, kind of the only dolphins we saw were like, at, you know, like at, in Ali's story was, was at Marine Park. So it was just so incredible to see just wildlife and just be out there in the ocean. Mm -hmm. I think my favorite moment uh, in filming this, obviously you can, you, we're, we're seeing a lot of incredible events happening around the world. You know, we're going to these countries and witnessing things and not all of them positive, but all of them, um, you know, fascinating and curious, but really like a lot of the, the excitement and the interest come and the discovery comes through the interviews with our experts. And so whether that be Professor Callum Roberts or Sylvia Earle or all the other ones and George Monbiot, he's just such a great speaker. We learned so much from him. He's such a great voice for this. And, and so a lot of a lot of the, you know, the best moments that are most enjoyable as filmmakers, because you can just sit there and ask all your questions. Now, it's entirely right to say that we must use far less plastic. But even if not a single gram of plastic entered the oceans from today onwards, we would still be ripping those ecosystems apart because the biggest issue by far is commercial fishing. It's not just far more damaging than plastic pollution. It's far more damaging than oil pollution from oil spills. We absolutely love the interviews. And I, I think, yeah, meeting Sylvia Earle and Paul Watson and, and Callum Roberts and George Moore, like all those guys was just, it was such a pleasure to speak with so many people that are in the film. And there's so many danger moments in the film. I remember the guy with the knife doing that, telling you to go away, or the guy with the, was it the chair kicking out of the store? Like, how was that? So it's quite funny that the one with the, the, the guy in Hong Kong, people keep saying they love that quote. Are you going to hit me with a chair? It's so funny because we were filming this guy handling all these, uh, this huge shark, uh, shark fin import that they just received, a big shipment. And we're filming through the shop and then he comes and closes the door, but the doors were glass doors. So we just kept filming and filming. And then he tried to threaten us with a chair. So 
it was, you know, it, it was, it was, it was something that we needed to do as due diligence for filmmakers. You know, there are risks when you're filming in these areas. There are big industry trying to cover up, but there's also a little bit of humor in those moments too. And what was the most dangerous place or moment in the documentary? Trying to tell the story of these people in Thailand who have been able to escape from the fishing industry after many years, some even a decade at sea, um, was definitely risky because you're dealing with human rights abuses and crime, and, and some sometimes the, the some corrupt authorities may be involved in in in, in instigating these issues and, and and continuing with them. So when we were there, you know, we, we had to be really careful how we did things. But we have to remember, like, you know, we were there voluntarily. You know, we weren't there to try and risk our lives for the for the entertainment factor. We just wanted to go there to try and tell their stories, to try and get their human element. These people are oppressed and have been oppressed for many years, and they have something more to fear for their lives than us who who fly in and fly out, you know? Yeah. And so... So we wanted to use our yeah. cameras and, you know, our, um, you know, to go over there our and, platform, let, yeah. Yeah, and let them tell the story um, yeah, through the absolutely. film. So it's, yes, it's self-aggrandizing a little bit, like icky to, to, for us to big up the risk on ourselves when really like we're there to bring the spotlight onto their risks, you know, and their dangers and what they've gone through. Mm, it's a powerful answer. I never thought of it like that. And um, you guys clearly really, really humble, but it, it makes sense. Um, what are the state of our oceans like at the moment? Our oceans are in a state of crisis. And in many areas of the world, the, all the wildlife has already been wiped out. The, the, the seagrass, the kelp forest, these beautiful ecosystems have been completely ransacked and, and bulldozed to the ground from bottom trolling and, and persaining and all this fishing that goes on, demolished through all the fishing gear. And so we really need to turn things around before it's too late. And I know that sounds alarming, but we need to take action now. This is a really urgent issue. We could be seeing fishless oceans in many areas of the world in the next several decades if we don't turn the clock. So this film is really going to start this conversation and, and, and put the actual solution to the fore. And that's what gives me hope. So although the oceans are in a state of chaos and, and crisis, we have the solutions available to us. It's really simple. It's actually put forward in the film of what we can do to turn things around. So according to the Plastic Pollution Coalition, what is the main source of plastic in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? Microplastics. For the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, I'm mostly finding microplastics. Well, the latest study actually showed that 46% of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is fishing nets alone, and the majority of the other garbage were other types of fishing gear. So wouldn't that be the majority? No, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say the majority of the plastic in the gyres, fishing nets. Um, it's it's a lot. It's a it's a mix of things. But a majority means over fifty percent, and fishing related garbage in the patch is over fifty percent. So wouldn't that make it the majority? Yeah. So if the if the if it's close to fifty percent, that's um, uh, yes, plastic fishing nets. There is nothing that would compare to that ratio as far as one item, you know. Uh, but the overwhelming uh, thing is that it's. It's plastic fishing nets. Is there something that people can do to stop this fishing net trash? Uh, one thing that you could do is is uh, eliminate or really really reduce your intake of, of fish and to really let those those populations rebound. But also that will eliminate as much materials being used to, to get those fish. Well, do you know why this important message isn't on your website? I I don't. I don't know. I don't make the website. I mean, it'd be great for you to talk to Diana about it. I mean, she's the founder. She's been in it. She's got. All, she could probably give you better answers. So Jackie was saying that one of the ways to tackle the massive problem of fishing nets in the ocean is to say no to eating fish. But I was wondering why you haven't put that important message on your website. 
a consumer message to eat less fish. That's yeah, it's not my area. It's not my area of focus. I hear you. Yeah. I don't have time. We have an event. Can you turn off the cameras? Thanks. I'm not interested in focusing there. I don't have an opinion about that. It's just, I was talking about what people can do to make a difference about fishing that trash in the ocean. And Jackie said we could eliminate or reduce fish consumption. And I asked if that was a She didn't pain. say to eliminate fish. She I know did. that she didn't. Is uh, eliminate or really, really reduce your intake of, of fish. She did. She didn't say she eliminate knows. fish. I had no idea what was going on. Why was such a simple question receiving such backlash? My only option was to follow the money. So I did. And sure enough, there it was. Of course, they're not gonna talk about fishing nets. The Plastic Pollution Coalition is the same organization as the Earth Island Institute. These are the same ones who are behind the Dolphin Safe Tuna label, who work with the fishing industry to sell more seafood. No wonder why they don't want to talk about the leading cause of plastic pollution in many parts of the world. Since its release in March 2021, Seaspiracy has garnered many reviews worldwide. It soon climbed up the ranks on Netflix in over 30 countries. In our exclusive interview for Plant Based News, Klaus Mitchell asked Ali and Lucy what proportion of feedback they thought, in terms of reception of the documentary, had been positive and negative. I think overall um, for us it's been like I'd say 95% positive um, but I also think a, a film that has gone to the scale that it is is really naive to think we're not going to get pushback especially because the nature of it is so controversial so you know pushback is to be expected um, but I also think that it's still you know making the conversation go which is which is good so yeah I mean criticism um, uh, pushback I think I think it's it's good as well because it gets uh, it gets people talking yeah and if you have a look at some of the reviews online on Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb you know it's at 96 percent 4.9 stars um, and that's coming from people who are you know of all ages you know young and old people who have knowledge of marine biology and science and even people who are seafood chefs have been writing to us and said that this really made them reconsider whether you know they're going to shift their menu on their restaurant and stuff so we're receiving, you know, a lot of positive feedback from all over the place, and the, you know, the small amount of uh, uh, criticism has really come from within the industry itself. Well, that being said, um, we also, I mean, it's so split because we have marine biologists who have reached out and said, you know, we love this film. We have other ones that, that criticize it heavily, and the same with the fishing industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, the fishing industry has pushed push back, which we expected. They pushed back before the film was even out. Um, but also, we, you know, I think it was on the radio we had um, a fisherman saying, you know, it's all true. Like so. Yeah. You know, in every sector, you, you do get divide. Yeah, and I guess it's expected that a documentary like Sea Spruce is going to um, polarise the audience. But I just wanted to ask quickly about what you just said. I just want to make sure I didn't hear it incorrectly. You're saying that a fisherman actually agreed with all of the points in the film, and you said that publicly, right? So I believe it was um, George Monbiot on Radio 4 or something, and, he, and I think they were speaking to a, a fisherman from the UK, and when the radio host asked him if he had any comments on the film, if he wanted to refute anything, I believe his comments were something along the lines of... We embrace documentaries like Seaspiracy. I think um, so, some of the issues, or many of the issues that it's highlighted um, are very real and significant issues um, within this global industry. Things like illegal, uh, unlegislated fishing, modern day slavery, and, and a number of the things that George has highlighted, I don't think they can be disputed. And we think... You know, we've been talking about some of these issues for a long time and, and think the conversation is long overdue. So from in, even within the industry, there's been acknowledgement of the issues that we raised. Yeah, I mean, that. sorry just to add, um, 
that happens a lot. Even the people who are coming out with statements, you know, who are in the film, they're even saying the, the film raised some good points, but, and then, you know, the criticism will come. So I think even with a lot of the criticism, they're still acknowledging that we've, you know, point, drawn attention to an overall issue that, you know, was well overdue to, to come out and everyone to talk about. So. Yeah, so I think it was the National Fisheries Institute in the States, which represent a huge majority of the US fishing industry. Uh, when the trailer came out, I believe they were getting ready to um, push back heavily against the film. And it's really no surprise to us. You know, it's something we encountered encountered while making the film. You know, the, the industry don't like it when you start shining a bright light in their direction. And, um, you know, that's that's one of the main things that, that happened and, and really just showed their motives of, you know, criticizing the film before it even came out. And that, I think, showed their, their bias heavily. So, yeah, we were expecting it all the way through. Mm, it's interesting when you think about it like that. I mean, obviously, it goes without saying that the film has had an absolutely amazing reception and response with the majority of the feedback exceptionally positive. But what was the strangest criticism? <laughs> it's got to be, it's got to be, why don't we call the film Conspiracy? I think that's been the funniest it's one. It's been right? the most common by far. Yeah, yeah. And, we, and we actually really love it. Like, obviously, um, you know, the film follows the same sort of story structure in a sense as uh, Cowspiracy, obviously uh, co-directed by Kip Anderson and Keegan Kuhn. And Kip Anderson is the executive producer on this film. And so, you know, with a lot of editorial input from him, it only made sense to, to call it Seaspiracy. And also, I think, we, you know, Conspiracy was on the table uh, a long time ago. And I think we all just didn't really like it because we'd have to forever be spelling Conspiracy with a C, S, E, A. And it was just going to be a confusing word jumble whenever word of mouth was going to, you know, grip the film and carry it. So... Um, we Plus, look, you know, it's, it's a lot of free marketing as well because this conspiracy <laughs> meme has gone viral. I've seen oh it on God. a page with like 22 million and it's just, it's, 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 it's yeah. so much free marketing. I mean, people, we try it's, this again it's next given, time. <laughs> it's given comedians a reason to talk about the film yeah. and share it with their audience. And uh, we absolutely love it and we have no regrets. We love we love the film Seaspiracy title. But give us a sense of like the kind of criticisms people leveled at the film. Lucy, we spoke off camera about some of the things. If you could just kind of summarize. <sighs> The thing that I keep hearing over and over again is, oh, it's the the whole film is filled with inaccuracies. They've cherry picked studies. They're you know they're just pulling out studies to you know serve their agenda. But and not not a lot of these people are sort of giving examples. Maybe there's like one or two examples, but for the most part, it seems like a quite a broad statement without much um, content in it. Mm, I guess when something's vague, it's actually hard to refute. So it's kind of it's quite a strategic response, right? Uh, but there have been a few specific uh, criticisms what I'd love to give you an opportunity to refute. So criticism number one, Oceana said he misrepresented that organisation because an interview of a former Oceana staffer appeared to suggest the organisation did not have a definition of sustainability. They said she meant that it can be confusing for consumers who try to buy sustainable seafood, not that Oceana does not have a definition for sustainability. In a statement, Oceana said, that choosing to abstain from consuming seafood is not a realistic choice for the hundreds of millions of people around the world who depend on coastal fisheries, many of whom are also facing poverty, hunger, and malnutrition. How do you guys respond to that? Yeah, I'm happy to answer that. So, you know, Oceana, although, you know, they're doing incredible work uh, around the world, when it comes down to, you know, one of their core messages, which is telling people that one of the best things they can do to protect the ocean is eat sustainable fish, and their own spokesperson said that, well, it's, there's no real definition for it. And it's really hard for consumers to work that out on their end as well. It just leaves you feeling like, well, there might be something lacking there. And so when it comes to a global, you know, one of the things they're saying is that it's not realistic for a global population or to, to adopt a plant-based diet. 
um, because there are people that depend on it. I think it's missing the point. There are plenty of people, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people that can uh, make the transition towards a more plant-based diet. And the people that rely on those fish, the best thing that we can do to ensure that they can survive and there's enough fish for those people to eat is for us people who have the privilege, if we have the privilege to uh, make a choice of what we eat, to avoid eating it. And also the people that do rely on those fish, the best thing we can do is privileged we are we're privileged enough to be in a situation where we can forego and not consume fish the best thing we can do to give those people a chance where we're not going to you know encounter fishless oceans is to give it up i mean lucy you were super powerful about this point uh before we started recording right and i think we've got to be really careful not to sort of weaponize um poor and vulnerable people who are depending on fish um to justify our own eating habits when we have the privilege to choose not to to choose something else quite comfortably I think the people that are that are watching this film on Netflix and are going to you know these web these NGOs websites looking for you know how to eat sustainably they're not the people that are relying on this for sustenance for survival. It's really articulated really well, Lisa. Completely as you know, agree. I just wanted to jump in here and mention criticism number two because one of the assertions in the film is that the ocean will be empty by 2048, which has attracted some criticism, hasn't it? What are your thoughts? Or, or at least, can you just explain it to the um? to our audience. So overall, I mean, the, the study was put out by uh, Boris Worm and, and Daniel Pauly. And the study estimated that if we, with current fishing trends, if they continue, we could see empty oceans or commercially virtually empty oceans by the year 2048. Now this is a speculation. As with everything, there's gonna be a margin of error. In some places in our oceans, that year is gonna be further. In some parts of our oceans, it's already happened where it's no longer viable to catch fish. There's just none, none left there anymore. The overall trend is what we need to look at. So who cares if it's 2048, 2050, 2051, the tra trajectory is showing that the fish populations are declining as overall they're going downwards. Sure, you might get a few species here that are rebounding a little bit because we've reduced fishing pressure, but the overall trend is going downwards. And one of the things that people at Critics are using to say that the, the study was um, debunked was I believe the scientists put forward a statement saying that um, you know, so long as we follow some sustainable measures, we're not going to see empty oceans by 2048. And I believe that might have been used to justify continuing fishing. But the thing is, that, that would be dependent on doing those sustainable measures. And there's no real evidence globally that we're doing that. And so we are in a trajectory. Uh, and Paul Watson believes that 2048 is an optimistic number. Well, I want to bring in Professor Callum Roberts here, who disagreed with the uh, critics of the film. He said, as quoted in The Guardian, it's not ma been made for its film scientific rigor. It's been used the techniques of film storytelling to make its case. My colleagues, he said, may rue the statistics, but the basic thrust of it is we're doing a huge amount of damage to the ocean. And that's true. At some point you run out, whether it's 2048 or 2079, the question is, is the trajectory in the wrong direction or is it in the right direction? What are your thoughts, Lucy? The, you know, it's really hard to make these projections into the future, especially when it comes to the ocean. It's such a such a broad topic. But ultimately, the overall trend is going down. So whether it's 2048, whether it's 2070, whether it's, you know, it, it's um it's looking at the overall picture and not getting caught mm. up on like one statistic. Mm. But there is yeah, it doesn't that's... detract from the message of the film Absolutely. in any way. We could take that fact out of the film and, the, you know, it'd still have the same. Mm. And, and not to mention there's huge amounts of credibility to that statement anyway. And actually some say that it's actually an optimistic projection in some parts of the ocean those those fish populations are long gone and it's no longer commercially viable to fish there there's just no wildlife left so some places it might die sooner some might die later but that doesn't detract from the message of the film that we need to change the trajectory that we're on
So after the conversation of Ali and Lucy, I realized something quite interesting after looking into the 2048 statistic. There's been a history of uh, one particular person who's been trying to retract this. His name is Ray Hilborn. I've just realized that according to a Greenpeace report, he's been paid off by the fishing industry to put out this murky message. Arguably, the worst thing about it is he hasn't even disclosed that he's received these payments. So, of course, there's a conflict of interest because he really wants to skew public opinion. And we have to remember that whenever there is criticism, we need to dig deep and think about who's making that criticism and are they, are they representing an industry? But the next point Ali addresses is whether he's cherry-picked certain facts in the film. When it comes to some disagreements about certain numbers and people claiming that some things were cherry picked when you ask them like what it was that's cherry picked they kind of go um ah uh, you know what you know they got no answer really but a few things that do come up obviously the 2048 number which we've addressed is the rates of bycatch in our in our fisheries so in the in the film we say that some estimates show that up to 40 percent of marine life caught gets thrown right right back overboard as bycatch and that was using i think the wwf uh, fao and oceana's numbers at the time but since, you know, because we're talking about the ocean, it's hard to quantify this stuff, the numbers get updated and it could be less. But what it doesn't acknowledge is the definition of bycatch can be also tweaked. And, and what happens is if you have a, a large school of fish and you're catching them, you want to keep the big ones and you want to get rid of the small ones. And that looks like you have a high bycatch rate. But once you fish all the big fish out of the ocean and they're none, none left anymore, you then have to start relying on the younger, smaller fish. And what it looks like is your bycatch rate is going down because you now no longer can't you can't afford to throw them away. And so what it does, it deceives the public into thinking that a fishery is progressing when actually what's happening is the population is being decimated to the point that fishermen can't afford to throw away those fish as bycatch. So there's technicalities in some of these statistics that people are saying, well, it's technically not true, but it, it ignores the overall trends time and time again that these populations are, are just falling into the ground. It's amazing how much you guys are clearly so clued up after doing this and it's amazing, amazing insights, Ali. I just want to talk about statistics. How did he know which one is to pick? Because every topic, you know, we have, there's so many statistics that we can pick from. How did he make sure that, you know, they were the most accurate um, representative statistics, you know, when it came to things like bycatch or overfishing? Um, I think in a lot of cases with the facts, um, we did err on the side of caution and tried to be conservative where possible because we're dealing with such, um, you know, huge margins and and because it's the ocean, there's so much unknown. Mm. A lot of these are projections, they're estimates. Um, mm. So, you know, we did often round down just to, just to make, just to Absolutely. be on the safe side. Yeah, and we wanted to make a rock solid film that's completely watertight as much as possible. And I think the fact that we have the world's attention on this film it's 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 standing the you know the test of best scrutiny so it's it's clearly uh you know worked out yeah look and and that's something that is is an obvious point but it's a good point you see people seem to forget it right sorry to cut in there but i just want to make sure that we address another specific point which i've got in front of me which was made after the film's release it was mark palmer from the international marine mammal project who said the film took my statement out of context to suggest that there's no oversight and we don't know whether dolphins are being killed. That is not true, he said. How do you guys respond to that? Look, when it comes down to it, they're making a claim that you can guarantee that this kind of dolphin, uh, this kind of tuna is dolphin safe. They cannot guarantee it. They said it in the interview. Nothing was taken out of context. And we wouldn't accept this level of uncertainty when it comes to other labels like GMO labels or organic labels or lactose-free labels. If something was 50% GMO, you, you can't call it GMO free. This is effectively what they're doing with cans of tuna with the dolphin safe label. If they cannot guarantee it and they can't, they shouldn't be putting it on cans of tuna. So nothing was taken out of context. 
And David Phillips, from again, from the same organization, the International Marine Mammal Project, said, the Seaspiracy falsely claims that dolphin safe label is a conspiracy to benefit the global fisheries industries. Phillips said the film had chosen to grossly distort and mischaracterize the aims of the label, Phillips said. Um, he said that the dolphin safe tuna program is responsible for the largest decline in dolphin deaths by tuna fishing vessels in history. He said dolphin kill levels have been reduced by more than 95%, preventing the indiscriminate slaughter of more than 100,000 dolphins every year. Uh, your thoughts? So the, the dolphin safe tuna, we weren't trying to make out that was a conspiracy to bend at the fishing industry. We were just clearly saying, um, you know, this isn't clear for consumers, conscious consumers who are trying to make the right, right decision. They're being told this is dolphin safe and you can't guarantee it. And even if it's, say, 95% dolphin safe, it's still not dolphin safe. Um, one dolphin, 10 dolphins, like, it's still not dolphin safe. And that's that's what the point we're trying to make was. It's not about being a conspiracy for the fishing industries. It's about transparency with the consumer. Mm. But how how do you respond to the um, the comments about the fact that they've actually reduced the number of by was it by ninety five percent right? I mean that's great if if they have um, helped the um, decline of dolphin deaths, but that's not clear to the consumer. When a consumer picks up that can, they're thinking this is dolphin safe. No mm. no dolphins were killed. Okay, if they're not like one dolphin, ten dolphins, like. It's, that's not transparency with the consumer. You can't make the claim that something is dolphin safe, even if there's one dolphin getting killed. Mm. And what I'd like to actually add on that is like, you know, how can they prove it that it's 95% reduction? I mean, if these observers that they even say in the interview can be bribed and these observers aren't even out there on these boats, how can they actually guarantee that 95% of reduction of dolphin deaths have occurred? So I'd like to see, like, prove it, define it, you know, show us how you know that. Yeah, just, um, and just what Mark said in the interview himself, he said, one dolphin and you're out. So that's his mm. words. Mm-hmm. Let's touch on another person, Christina Hicks, who was actually interviewed in the film. She said on Twitter that it's unnerving to discover your cameo in a film slamming an industry you love and are committed your career to. Uh, yeah, we were surprised to read that because we did interview her on, and we said we we're doing a film about ocean conservation and we wanted to talk about the fishing industry. And, you know, she did agree to the interview. She did sign a release form. So, yeah, we were surprised. Mm. Yeah, so Christina Hicks, I, I, mean, I mean, we really loved her interview. It was, it was probably one of the shortest in the entire film. It was just to say uh, two facts about fishing subsidies and to draw awareness to that. Uh, that $35 billion globally go to the fishing industry when we need less than that to resolve world hunger, according to United Nations. Um, so yeah, we were surprised to hear that, you know, she didn't maybe align with the film, but, um, you know, we were grateful for her contribution and, um, you know, there's no animosity. I think what she contributed to the film was great. Um, I just want to add that um, not everyone we interview necessarily has to agree with the conclusion of the film. And often when we interview people, we don't ourselves know the conclusion of the film. You know, this was earlier on in the process. Um, so we were still sort of like just doing interviews, trying to find out what that story was. Um, so we didn't know the premise of the film ourselves at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I'm just going through, you know, this is an opportunity for you guys to respond to stuff just because people, yeah, there's a lot of misinformation flying around. I know a lot of people click this video. Let's talk about the New York Times. You said your film made some great points, which of course it did, but they said it was too conspiratorial. Again, what's what's your take? No, I mean, the, the, the sort of conspiracy element is more just like there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of ignorance to these subjects and there's a lot of, you know, maybe collusion perhaps or conflict of interest when it comes down to it. But in terms of a conspiracy, I mean, it's it, the fact is that these organizations that seem to, you know, that claim to know what is sustainable and are, and are accrediting that to certain products, 
cannot guarantee it. They can't define it. Even up to the uh, European Union, there's, there's, there's even misconception of what sustainable fishing even is in, within the policymakers that are, you know, putting forward policy and how we deal with our oceans and how we deal with fishing. And so I think there's just a lot of ignorance going along, um, but we're not trying to make a conspiracy that's not there. Mm. So what, what was the bit when it did feel like a bit of a conspiracy? Or I guess a better question is, why did he even call it Seaspiracy then? What, what, is the, what is the actual conspiracy? Um, when we're asking these organizations and bringing up this simple question from our point of view, you know, what about fishing gear? Why, what about fishing nets? Why isn't this part of the conversation? The huge pushback, that is what gives us this kind of vibe of there's something that's going on here. There's something that doesn't add up. There's something that, you know, seems like it's being hidden. So that's, that's for me what the conspiracy is. And we talked earlier about the, the process of making this documentary. Everybody knows a film is highly edited, right? Are there any parts that were let's say narrativized i would i would say that the you know the beginning of the film uh, me being the plastic police you know um that that whole element of, of calling restaurants up and asking them to end their plastic uh, uh use is is definitely narrativized and kind of retells my story um over the years condensed into a short space of time as someone who was really really passionate about plastic and, and, and really sort of retelling that story so the audience uh you know gets up to speed with where i'm at as as a, an ocean lover and someone who wants to take action. So that whole intro part about, you know, the plastic police, you know, that was definitely narrativized, I think. Yeah. And I'm just want to add that that was probably, it, you don't think it would be, but that was actually in a lot of ways, the hardest part of the film to get right. Because, you know, when we were sort of traveling, uncovering all this stuff, it was like we hit the ground running and it's like, well, hang on back up. We need to sort of get the audience up to speed mm. and we've got to, you know, introduce Ali's character and yeah. it was in a lot of ways like really tricky to try and get that right mm -hmm. um, because you know it wasn't perhaps as authentic um, and as you know yeah so it's definitely and, and credit to Kip you know Kip Anderson you know the, the executive producer on this film was really the one suggested to me that hey Ali you're going to be the guy that like this journey follows you know when I when I set out to make a film about the ocean like I never realized it would be following my journey um, I thought it'd be just me telling a story about the ocean and and really, it needed that central character to, to carry the, the, the story forward. So, um, you know, Kip definitely encouraged that and pushed that forward. And just to rattle through a few other things, normally fish eaters say to defend their position is, you know, fish aren't as sentient as, as land animals. Um, how do you respond to that? I think the sentience of fish is most understood probably because they're the most alien to our senses. So they're probably the last that we're going to care about because, you know, they don't blink. They're, they're kind of underwater. They're, they're very foreign to us. Um, so it's very hard for us to empathize with, with them. I think the more life as a creature is, the easier it is for us to empathize. So they're kind of at the bottom of the list when we, when we think about, you know, can they feel pain? Can they feel fear? But, you know, there, there's emerging signs that they can. In many ways, like they experience things far superior to ourselves. They can see better than us they can hear better that you know they have incredibly sensitive things going on in their bodies where they all move as one um so yeah i mean i really hope that people start um start extending you know our circle of compassion to fish as well mm, i completely i completely agree and what about people that just have fish because they genuinely believe they need it for nutrients i think for so long this this idea has just been so foreign to so many people because there's this assumption that we need to eat fish right that it, that it is a necessary thing but as the documentary shows, you know, you can get these nutrients from other plant-based sources. You can be, uh, you know, healthy and you can eat those things without touching the ocean. So I think by showing that it's not necessary, we've opened up the possibility that people can do this 
and address it in the same way that we do with plastic. Um, I think we should also mention that, you know, the omega-3, it is coming from the algae um, and people are sort of getting it from the fish, but the, the original source is the algae and you can get omega-3 from, you know, chia seeds, flax seeds, walnuts, so. Yeah, and Lucy, like we cover this sort of stuff a lot on our channel. Um, vegans, the science is kind of undecided, but generally speaking, it's kind of known that vegans can get omega-3s from things like flaxseed. You know, when you have flaxseed, the ALA in the body converts to DHA and EPA, and that's why you need to eat a healthy diet. If you have an unhealthy diet, then it can block the, the um, what do you call it, the conversion. But anyway, like I'm going off on a bit of a tangent. The point is vegans can get omega-3s and if they feel they can't there are omega-3 supplements algae supplements that supports the point you've made but i just want to ask like was this a health film did he make this film with a kind of particular vegan or plant-based message in mind throughout the film you know we're not trying to tell anyone what to do throughout the whole film it's just us exploring trying to find out more answers and just trying to ask the difficult questions and it's interesting to note that throughout the film the people that are actually mentioning um, the the moral hypocrisy and also the demand to consume less seafood are not people who are vegan necessarily. The whaler in the Faroe Islands points out the hypocrisy of pointing at those uh, who hunt whales when the rest of the world is eating you know, cows, pigs, chickens, and fish. And he points out the hypocrisy of that and how really the only morally consistent way would be to con would be to not kill any animals and just eat plants. A whaler was the person that actually addressed that in the film. Another person that addressed it in the film was one of the slaves uh, or ex-slaves who said that he'd like to see people stop consuming this slave court marine life if, if possible, possible, if possible, you know. And so another one is, you know, Callum Roberts, who's in the film. He's not a vegan and he agrees the best thing we can do is just not eat the fish, reduce the fish, fish consumption if we if you can. Same with Sylvia Earle, you know, she she's a vegetarian, not a vegan. And she said she's she's the legend of the marine conservation world and she agrees the best thing we can do for our oceans is to simply stop eating marine life so time and time again we're not trying to tell people what to do and this isn't a vegan thing this is what is the best thing we can all do every single day to make the best impact on the ocean and it simply is to reduce and eliminate our consumption of marine animals what next for, for team Seaspiracy? So after the release of Seaspiracy and the overwhelming response, we've been growing our team on Seaspiracy to, to really just make sure that we put out even more investigative and, and educational content on the ocean. And so our social media platforms are growing really rapidly and, and a lot of people are loving the content on there and over on our website. And so really is that's what we're going to be focusing a lot of our time on, continuing the mission beyond the constraints of the film to make sure we reach even more people in different areas of the world, different demographics, getting educational programs at schools and campaigns and petitions. and Approaching and what, government. Absolutely. Well. Working with government and industry to help them um, make the transition and become more aware of these issues that so many, even within government and industry, are just unaware of. So that's a big part of it. And we'll be launching a project called Disrupt News, uh, which focuses broadly even more than just the ocean uh, on environmental and social issues and really covering issues at the intersection of that. So that's at disruptnews.org. Um, but because we've been so busy, it's just been a tidal wave and just making sure that we keep up with everything. But that's what we're working on as well as future documentaries in the near future. I'm super looking forward to those. How can people support your efforts in the Seaspiracy movement and, and the traction that it's getting? How can they help augment what's already happening? You know, if people want to support the ongoing campaign with Seaspiracy and, and really get this message out there, you know, they can follow us on, on Seaspiracy on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and everywhere uh, and, and visit our website and sign up for the upcoming newsletter that will be blasting out a campaign that everyone can be part of and really be part of this global movement that's now talking about the leading threat to our ocean 
and the best thing that we can do, this most simple solution that we can do in our personal lives to actually turn things around. So, you know, I really appreciate everyone's support and, and actually sharing this film and making sure it gets to number one in their country. It's, the response has been phenomenal and we're just super, super grateful. Thank you.